Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. Good on, mate. Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about Vlad the Impaler, also known as Vlad the Third Dracula, and uh, we'll be discussing exactly why uh, the the name Dracula came to be attached to him, and obviously, you know, later on with Bram Stoker's novel and, and vampires and all that sort of nonsense. But uh, I do want to talk about, you know, the, the actual factual stuff that this bloke got up to because uh, it is about as far down the spectrum of bloodthirsty, you know, absolute craziness that you can uh, you can think of. This bloke did some uh, some pretty messed up stuff in his lifetime. So we're going to get across all that, have a chat about the life and times of Vlad the Impaler and figure out exactly why he was called the Impaler. It's not a particularly difficult uh, uh, case to crack, I will say that. Anyway. Going to go back to 1430, so uh, early to mid 15th century here when Vlad is born. Uh, around 1430, maybe a year or two either side. We're not actually 100% sure of his, his exact birth date, but around about that time anyway. He's born in a place called Transylvania, which I have to say, I actually didn't really think was a real place, but it actually is. It's in Romania. I'm, uh, I'm not joking about this bit. Before I learned that Transylvania was real, uh, I thought it was like, you know, like Narnia or, or Middle Earth or something like that. But no, it is, it is actually a real place that you can go to. Anyway, he's born as Vlad III, son of Vlad II, uh, because obviously, you know, these these old bloody bastard knobs from the from the olden days love to make things as, as confusing as possible for two-bit historians down the centuries. Thanks so much for that. Cheers for that, fellas. Um, his old man is the is the voivode of uh, Wallachia, kind of like a prince or a ruler or whatever, and uh, is known as Vlad Dracul because he was a member of the Order of the Dragon. So the original Vlad Dracul, not Dracula, Dracul, Vlad Dracul was Vlad the Impaler's father. And the reason he's called this is because of the word Dracul. It comes from the old Romanian term for dragon. And so um, our mate Vlad III, Vlad the Impaler, inherits the honorific in the form of Dracula, which means son of the dragon. So you've got Vlad Dracul as his dad, a member of the Order of the Dragon, and then Dracula, Vlad Dracula, is the son of the dragon, as he, you know, is the son of the guy who was in the Order of the Dragon. And this word is completely uh, reclaimed, not even reclaimed, just claimed. It didn't belong to Bram Stoker to begin with. Bram, Bram Stoker comes along and goes, oh, I'll have that, That's a, that, uh, that sounds pretty cool. And so it becomes on. It, it, it goes on to uh, take a completely different meaning after Stoker writes his uh, his novel Dracula in 1897. But just to be clear, at this stage, it has nothing to do with vampires or, or anything else like that. We'll talk a bit more about it, in, you know, before the end of the show. But uh, at this stage, Vlad Dracula, you know, people aren't going around being like, "Oh, show us those pointy." Hang on, how are you crossing this river? Why are you outside? Why don't I see you in the you know in the mirror? All that sort of stuff. Don't don't worry about that. Anyway, now the Order of the Dragon, which is uh, obviously what uh, Vlad's old man, Vlad II, is in, has a single aim. They want to get busy with the nearby Ottomans, based out of uh, modern-day Turkey, and uh, really just yeah, mess them up. Want to go and fight and scrap with the Ottomans as much as possible. They're, they're basically there to, uh, you know, as one of the frontiers against the, the Muslim Ottomans, that, uh, you know, as part of uh, Eastern Europe, which is, uh, which is Christian still. Um, the Muslim Ottomans, they, they're constantly pushing into Christian Europe, uh, and places like Wallachia, 
end up being the staging grounds for you know huge big battles between the two faiths because of you know its proximity to, to the, the border between the two different belief systems. And uh, this makes it very hard for uh, old mate Vlad the second because you know Ottomans are yeah they're mighty as anything, and instead of getting aggro with uh, with them, he ends up having to uh, to pay tribute to them from 1437 onwards. He's actually in such a bad position that uh, against these uh, these you know these Muslim invaders that that he actually ends up having to sort of become. A little bit of a, uh, well, yeah, has to go and offer them tribute and, and becomes, you know, sort of begging and scraping on his knees really just to keep his kingdom together, his little voivode ship together. Anyway, in 1442, the Ottoman Sultan, Murad II, wants to get up and out and go and crack some Hungarian skulls. And as a result of this, he gets in touch with Vlad Senior and says, how about it, old son? Let's go and, uh, and you know, get some stuff done in, in Hungary and, uh, and, and go and give these bastards what for. Now, Vlad II, he doesn't like this plan too much, despite, he, despite as I say, despite him being under the thumb of the Ottomans. Uh, he doesn't really want to help him slash and burn through Christian lands. And uh, as you can imagine, Murad II, none too pleased with this, as he wants his loyal servant to, uh, to do what he's told. And so he orders Vlad to come and visit him uh, for a quick chat. But, you know, I don't know if that was the exact term used. I mean, you know, he's not the vice president, president of marketing asking you to come to the office for a quick chat. And then, you know, there's the HR manager and, and security guard with a cardboard box. I'm not exactly sure that was how it went, but, you know, you can, you can imagine the scene anyway. So Vlad the Elder, he packs up all his stuff, uh, including his two sons, uh, Vlad III, who we've talked about, and Radu. Now, big twist. You're not going to believe this. Murad II ends up being a, a, a real dirty dog and imprisons a lot of them instead of just having a chinwag. So I, I guess at that stage, he probably would have preferred the cardboard box and the security guard, to be honest. But Vlad II is set free. So ultimately, after a, a period of imprisonment, Vlad, uh, Dad Vlad, that's a good one, should have, should have gone with that a lot earlier. Dad Vlad is set free, but his two sons are kept as hostages to ensure his ongoing loyalty. So proper Game of Thrones stuff here, which is obviously based on actual the realities of you know medieval life so we're not too far away from it there anyway hold on to the sons keep them uh, keep the uh, keep the dad loyal by keeping his sons as uh, as hostages or wards as that was sometimes known now the funny thing was this didn't work it did not secure the loyalty of, of dad vlad because a couple of years later in 1444 vlad ii supports a, a polish and hungarian campaign against the ottomans despite the fact that the Ottomans have his two sons as, as hostages. He reckons that his two sons are buggered. Do, doesn't matter what he does. They're, you know, they're still going to have, have the short end of the stick. Doesn't matter what he does. Um, you know, a bit of collateral damage there, just consigning your two sons to the scrap heap. Good on your dad, Vlad. Um, but as a matter of fact, get this, the two boys remain completely unharmed despite their father's disloyalty. Matter of fact, they're having a great time. They're having a great time as, uh, as hostages of the Ottomans. They're both given excellent educations. They're learning about art and science and philosophy, all that sort of rubbish, as well as being trained as fighters. As a result of this, Radu, Vlad's younger brother, he loves it there. He ends up becoming mates with the Sultan's son, Mehmet, and converts to Islam and generally just has a great time. He's partying every, night, every day and every night. He's loving it with the Ottomans. He, he can't believe his new, his new life. He's loving it. Vlad, on the other hand, holds a deep and abiding grudge against his captures, bloody hating the fact that he's there stuck in this gilded cage. So very different perspectives taken on by the older and the younger brother there. Anyway, while these two boys are being held hostage, their old man Vlad, he's up and about trying to hold on to his, uh, his title as the, as the voivode of uh, Wallachia. And I have to say, he's doing a pretty bloody rubbish job at this, uh, to be honest. And in 1447, he's finally overthrown and killed by the Wallachian boyars. Uh, these are the local no uh, nobles, you know, the sort of the, the, the next noble class down from where, from where uh, Vlad, uh, Dad Vlad was. And the, uh, the thing, my favourite thing about the boyars 
is they had this stupid habit of wearing the most ridiculous hats you've ever seen. They look like overgrown, you know, bloody doorknobs stuck in their head. Honestly, they look like Toad from from Mario. They they look like they've got these massive, big, you know, spherical orbs on top of their hats. They look like bloody, you know, onion men. Anyway, a new bloke after the Boyars uh, knockoff, uh, old mate Dad Vlad. Uh, a new bloke who is rather annoyingly named Vladislav, right? Vladislav II, he becomes the Voivode. Uh, and our mate Vlad III, Vlad the Impaler, not, he's not the Impaler. He's got a lot of impaling yet to do. He's, he's, this is pre-impaling, so just, he's just Vlad III at the moment, Vlad Dracula. He is, he is as mad as a frog, in a frog in a sock at this point because he wants the title for himself. Obviously, he doesn't want some blow-in bloody Vladislav II uh, coming in to, to nick his title off him. So as a result... Our mate Vlad uh, has a, a chat with his captors and says, listen here, you bloody Ottoman bastards. Uh, well, Achia, it's mine by rights now that my old man's been done in. How about you give us a hand in reclaiming it? Now, the Ottomans, despite the fact that Vlad, you know, hates their guts and whatever else, he, he's willing to cut a deal with them. And the Ottomans actually are big fans of this. They, they like this plan as they reckon it'll expand their influence further west if, you know, they give this this uh, this boy a chance to reclaim his kingdom. Obviously, he'll, they'll, he'll then be in their debt or whatever. And so in 1448, they put Vlad III in charge of a regiment, give him a slap on the bum and say, get to it, my lad, go and, uh, and fight for, your, you know, your home country there. So... While Vladislav II is busy, you know, fighting off somewhere else, doing whatever he's doing, Vlad III, he sneaks in with his Ottoman army and he snags himself. Well, that's you. Easy. Get it done. Bloody ripper. Can't believe his luck. He's done it. Get around him. What a legend. But then when Vladislav II gets wind of this, when he finds out that he, uh, you know, this, this upstart uh, youngster has come and reclaimed his father's, uh, his father's title... He's not having a bloody bar of it. He zooms back to Wallachia top speed, pulls down Vlad's pants, and gives him a proper hiding. I'll tell you this. Uh, Vlad is forced to flee back to the Ottoman Empire with his tail between his legs. Uh, but to be honest, he has had enough of these Ottomans. He's had enough of these mongrels. And so he buggers off into Europe. And as it happens, actually completely falls off the radar for a few years there. Between 1449 and 1456, we just we have no idea what this bloke got up to. Nothing monumentally important, you'd think, because, as I say, he more or less disappears from history during this time. But, yep, just a, just a big old blank spot in the, uh, in the middle of, the, you know, in the middle of this, uh, this Vlad-based timeline here. We just don't know what he got up to. Anyway, doesn't matter exactly what he did there. But we do know that one thing didn't change throughout this time. He is Vlad is Vlad, Vlad is well and truly on team bugger the Ottomans. He can't stand them. He manages to secure the support of the Hungarians against the Ottomans. Um, the Hungarians, you know, they can see how Vlad wants to give you know what for to the Ottomans to reclaim his uh, his throne again. And so after coming out of this this sort of mystery period, he is ready to get up and about, chuck some punches around, and go and reclaim his kingdom for the second time. So as a result of this, with his Hungarian army in tow. Um, he he heads back in 1456. He head back, heads back into Wallachia, and uh, with the with the, the Hungarian army, as I say, he's back. He finally reclaims his position as the voivode of Wallachia once and for well, not once and for all. Spoiler alert: not once and for all. But for now, at least, he's happy. He's sat on his throne. He's eating grapes. He's having a great time. He's loving life. This begins the period of iron-fisted cruelty that Vlad became known for, and 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 what ultimately got him the nickname the Impaler. Because the first thing that Vlad does now that he's large and in charge is direct two stiff middle fingers towards the Ottoman Empire, telling him, no longer going to be paying you any tribute, mate, or any of that rubbish. Get out of here. Not interested. Not going to be under anyone's thumb anymore. I'm my own man. The second thing he does is deal with these bastard boyars with their big onion hats who had uh, knocked off his old man. And I'll tell you what, he doesn't muck around at all. 
So what he does, what he does, bit of a bit of an Olga of Kiev trick here. What he does, he invites these dickheads along with their doorknob hats to a big feast to celebrate his ascendancy. And again, you can probably guess uh, what's going to come next. He says, come on, you blokes, come and cop a feed, get on the sauce with us. It'll be great. We're going to have a great time. Uh, but uh, again, it is not a particularly great time for these boys. Great time for Vlad. He's having a great time. I mean, you know, at least he didn't broke his word when it came to himself. But uh, no, these boys are pretty... Uh, Pretty rubbish time. One of the one of the most rubbish times you can uh, you can possibly think of here, because Vlad executes them in one of the most gruesome ways you can think of, and uh, I'm sure astute listeners will have already figured out exactly how these blokes are going to meet their end. These boyars, uh, they are impaled. No surprises there. He puts uh, he puts big old spikes right through them. Unbelievable. They are forced onto these massive spikes that are drug, uh, that are sort of, uh, you know, uh, forced into the ground. So that they're dug into the ground there like that. And then these boyars are, uh, uh, you know, are forced on top of them and uh, just left there to die slowly and incredibly painfully. They're not killed straight away. It's, again, a, a horrific way, a torturous way to die. Um, but the thing is, after these boyars are stuck there on these spikes and while they're slowly moaning and groaning and, you know, sliding further and further down onto these spikes as they're impaled, Vlad's just sitting there, surrounded by these bodies, twitching and, and bleeding on the great big spikes, and the story goes that he went ahead and just tucked right into his dinner. Bloody NBD, no big deal, don't, don't worry about it, still got to have his pork chops, his mashed potatoes, while all these people are, you know, dying around him, he's loving it. And this is just the beginning, because in the coming time, Vlad did not let up. He started a brutal campaign of retribution against anyone who was involved with the, the killing of his old man or against rebels or dissenters in his realm or just basically anyone he didn't like, essentially. So he's, come, he's coming after a lot of people. Not only did he impale all the boyars who had been involved in offing his dad, he also impaled merchants and, and you know, people who had, who had supported those people, the boyars and whatever else. And when he didn't feel like impaling people, instead he just burn them alive or chop them into bits or do any other any number of other absolutely brutal things here now the reason we have so much information about this and, and we're going we're going to get into this in a, in a you know in a, in, a, in a bit of a deeper fashion in just a second here but i want to talk about one of the implications one of the historical things that was going on at the time that that is one of the reasons that this story is sort of what it is today and that's the printing press the printing press and movable type has more or less just been invented and stories are flying around Europe about this bloke and they include all sorts of, of, of incredible stories about what he get, he's getting up to. One, uh, one publication, which was rather ridiculously titled About a Mischievous Tyrant Called Dracula, uh, talks about how he would boil people alive in a big copper cauldron and burn mother, mothers alive with their newborn infants. I mean, that's not my definition of mischievous. You know, that's not quite sort of Peeves the Poltergeist type mischievous, but I guess it is... It is you know, the worst kind of mischief, I suppose, if you really want to put it in those terms. Anyway, another talks about uh, how we would roast, roast small kids and force their mums to eat them and then mutilate the women and force their dads to eat or their husbands to eat them. And so, you know, we've got the whole Matryoshka doll situation going on. In, in, yeah, it's not, not a nice thing to think about. But later on, in a war with the Ottomans, the Ottoman troops reported being in a forest of actual tens of thousands of impaled corpses. And all of this was, again, reported widely because of the uh, the printing press. And uh, the stories continue. You know, not only the forests of, uh, of trees and whatever else like that. Trees, not trees. Forest, not of trees. Forest of impaled people. Um, there was one story that goes that uh, when some Ottoman emissaries were sent to talk with Vlad, try to, you know, just get him to calm down a little bit and stop all this, you know, brutal and bloodthirsty murder... Um, uh, when they were sent to uh, to meet with Vlad, he asked them to take off their turbans as a sign of respect. Now, obviously, these Ottomans, they refused. They said, no, mate, we'll leave the turbans on if it's all the same to you. And Vlad gets up and says, well, I'll tell you that. I'll tell you this. 
well, seeing as you like bloody wearing them turbans so much, how about you never take them off again? And he then gets his men to seize these emissaries and nail their turbans to their heads. Never mind that they're diplomats or anything else like that, but imagine this, having your, your bloody turban nailed to your head. That's what happened to these blokes. Now, it's fair to say that this bloke played as an absolute nutcase. He had no reservations or qualms about you know doing some of the most messed up stuff you're likely to hear about. But, 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 how much of this is true? And how much of it is, is sensationalised, uh, you know, hearsay that has sort of done the rounds thanks to the advent of, uh, of this, you know, modern communication with the printing press. Let's talk about this here. Let, let's talk about how true these stories about his cruelty might actually be because, in fairness, it's not as black and white as you might think. There's no doubt, there's absolutely no doubt that this bloke got up to some pretty horrific business in his time, but the problem is this. It's very difficult to determine what is legitimately true and what has been embellished or exaggerated or just completely made up out of nowhere. The printing press meant that these stories went far and wide, in particular throughout the German-speaking regions of Europe. And this is problematic because many of the blokes, you know, printing this rubbish about him may have been hostile towards him and very keen to display him as a much greater monster than he actually was. So it may have been coloured by a fair bit of bias here. Additionally, this is confused further by the other end of history, if we jump forward, you know, 400 years here, with idiots conflating stuff from Bram Stoker's entirely fictional novel with actual history, despite it being published, as I say, hundreds of years later. Stoker, who, again, wrote Dracula and, and didn't seem to have done too much research about it, he, he didn't even know about, sorry, about this this situation. With Obviously, he did, he did his research on vampires. He's reading through the Monster Manual and D&D &D and making sure he's getting all the stats right and everything. But he didn't do too much um, uh, research about uh, Vlad himself because uh, it, it seemed that he just needed, you know, a, a sort of a, a big villain, a big bad guy, uh, and uh, picked this this bloke Dracul, Dracula, as uh, you know, out of all these German powerful, as just as just a, a sort of boilerplate villain, right? Vlad didn't drink blood. He wasn't a cannibal, and he wasn't a vampire or anything else like that. But this sensationalist rubbish gets included in stories about him because. It's morbidly interesting, and because of the myth and the legend that sprang up around him, not only because of the th things that he did, but the things that people said he did, and then the fact that it was just all piggybacked onto this very, very, this wildly successful novel in uh, in the in the late nineteenth century. And as any, I mean, this isn't news. Everyone knows that sensationalism sells. I mean, that's why right now I'm talking about this bloke Vlad the Impaler, and not, you know, for example, his predecessor Vlad the First, whose Wikipedia article is literally three sentences long. But still, it's pretty certain that these accounts, as embellished and as you know, sexed up as they might be, aren't too far from the truth. The challenge is sifting through what is true and what has been embellished, as, as I've said. We know that there's elements of truth to this because all of the pamphlets and publications share important key consistencies. They've all published at the same time and they all, they all have you know, important things in common despite being disconnected in every other way, meaning that there's not so much grains of truth in here, but big old lumps of it. So that's very important. Anyway, we've, we've talked about historical sensationalism a fair bit on this podcast, and you know, I don't want to beat this, this dead horse too much, but the fact of the matter is that history has a huge PR issue, has a huge PR problem, and sensational stories do serve a legitimate purpose in getting people actually interested in history itself. And that's where I'm torn, because obviously I want to talk about things that are interesting and things, things that are going to, you know, encourage people to, to listen and, and, and think and maybe read for themselves or do further research or whatever else. But 
by and large, the, his, the, histor- the history industry, if you want to put it like that, is all about names and dates and facts and figures and times and places. And that is just boring. We're not interested in that as people. We want stories. We want stories. We want sensational stories that make us think and go, oh, you know, we want things that trigger a visceral emotional response. And that's what is the core of history's PR problem. So I'm very torn because I want to bring interesting, engaging, sensational stories to people, but you cannot sacrifice the truth when you're talking about history. It is critically important that we don't lose sight of the historical realities of matters like this, and it is critically important to make sure that the truth does, in fact, get in the way of a good story. Anyway, that's enough of that nonsense. Let's get back to the blood and the guts. Vlad has a great run as the Voivode. He really does. Within five years or so of being put in the top job, job however, he is, uh, you know, he's getting a bit of an itchy... Well, not, not an itchy trigger finger, I guess, but an itchy sword arm. You know, this, this business of rulership, it's not, there's not quite as many rivers of blood in it as, as he was hoping. And uh, as a result, he wants to start, start chucking some punches eastwards towards the Ottomans because, he, again, he's still never really forgiven them for his imprisonment and he just generally just hates their guts and he wants to get up and about and, and, and give them what for. Now, the Ottomans, interestingly enough, they're frothing for a scrap as well because, of course, Vlad isn't paying them tribute anymore and they're none too happy about this. So Vlad, he takes the opportunity to start, start blueing with the Ottomans uh, with the, on, their, on their fortresses along the Danube, in some instances demanding that they open their gates in fluent Turkish and then, you know, doing the old Trojan horse, the old Turkish horse from the inside. He's able to trick his way into many of these, uh, these uh, fortresses with, his, with his, the fluent Turkish that he learned as, as a youngster. Um, this is also another point in his career where he gets a lot of impaling done. I mean, the name was very well chosen for him because he did really, you know, in terms of if there was an all-time, you know, when you go to like the footy club, right? And on and on the wall, there's the big, there's the the, the wooden board with the gold letters that have, you know, the all-time best and fairest or, you know, the MVPs or the numbers of goals kicked or whatever else like that. If there was one of them for impaling across the centuries, Vlad be right up there. He's well and truly in that conversation. You know, perhaps even the greatest of all time, really. But that's that's a, that's a chat for another day. He gets a lot of impaling done in this period in his career. Um, you know, this is this is when there's the creation of the forest of the poor impaled blokes that I mentioned before. But again, it's just his. Uh, it's sort of his little uh, modus operandi for uh, for slow and painful deaths for for, for people. Um, Anyway, as a result, in 1642, Sultan Mehmet II has had enough of this nonsense. Obviously, all the pillaging and reaving and impaling that Vlad's doing has finally got the notice of the Sultan, and he says, okay, enough of this rubbish, and he invades Wallachia good and proper with an army of over 150,000 blokes. By the way, this is the same Mehmet that Vlad's brother Radu was matey with back when they were kids, and uh, it's, it, it, it won't surprise you to learn that Mehmet is actually looking to capture Wallachia for Radu, who was stuck around with the Ottomans all this time, very loyal to them, big, big fans of them. And so if he's plonked on the throne of Wallachia, obviously then the Ottomans will have a very, uh, a very w- willing servant there. Now, Vlad, he's not an idiot. He's not an idiot. He recognises that he is outnumbered and that he's outmatched, and he decides to get some cloak and dagger stuff going instead of trying to fight them in the open, you know, pitch battle in the open field against 150,000 blokes. So what he does, he himself, right, again, pops on the uh, the gloves, the balaclava, Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible, probably not, but still, it's a it's a nice mental image. We've had it before. We'll have it again. He sneaks into the uh, the Ottoman encampment by himself and tries to assassinate Sultan Mehmet II. Now, I don't want to get you too excited about this because he fails, but (laughs) he picks the wrong tent. Uh, But he managed to escape all the same because, again, 
he could speak Turkish. He could get he could try you know pass himself off as one of these Ottomans as well. So after sneaking into this camp, having a look around, unfortunately raises the alarm before he can find the Sultan, but does a pretty good job of the old subterfuge as well. So a man of many talents. He wear a lot of hats. You know, he did his impaling. He did his sneaking around. He he really min maxed his character in, in a very uh, you know in a very interesting way. He flees back to his capital, Targa Vista, and, uh, and makes ready to desert it, implementing the old uh, scorched earth policy so there's nothing there for the Ottomans to capture when they finally arrive because he knows he's going to lose it. So he, he just doesn't want to give them the, you know, the, the resources of, of, of the city itself. But before leaving, before leaving Targa Vista once and for all, he, uh, he impales another 20,000 or, so, 20, or, so, uh, 20, or so people, you know, prisoners of war, people sympathetic to the Ottomans, what have you, just for good measure. Just get some impaling done. You know, he's, he's got a couple of free hours. Just, just get some impaling done, why don't you? But this means, the other thing that this means, is that when the Ottomans arrive in Targovista, they find a deserted, burnt-down city filled with the rotting, impaled corpses that Vlad had left behind. And it won't surprise you to learn that old mate Mehmet did not stick around for very much longer after having seen this. They were pretty messed up by this horrific, you know, this horrific bloodshed that they'd seen, and the Ottomans kind of lost their taste for, for war after that. And uh, as a result, they, uh, they turn around and, uh, and, and head back home. But... This is not. Uh, this is not still not good enough news uh, for our friend Vlad here, uh, because he, he just can't sustain uh, any any semblance of leadership at this point after the the Ottomans. Because you know it's not as if the Ottomans lost the campaign; they still made a, a fair headway into Europe there. But even after arriving at Targovista and turning around, they they they, they still won the war. And uh, the prevailing political winds kind of just send him straight into exile. Despite his victories over the Ottomans being you know celebrated and lauded by Christians everywhere, they're still not enough. And he couldn't stitch together a proper W, a proper W over the over the invading Muslims there. So, Vlad heads into uh, into Hungary, into exile, and unfortunately, uh, things uh, go from bad to worse for our mate here because he ends up being imprisoned by some mercenaries uh, who forged some letters that said that Vlad wanted to side with the Ottomans and attack Hungary. So, one of the most unbelievable stories. But again, Vlad has a reputation for for you know just total insanity so unfortunately for him it is believed it's it's we know that you know he hated the ottomans and he loved whacking him up on spikes and whatever else but it worked unfortunately and vlad effectively is behind bars for a very long time after this he's imprisoned in visegrad for almost 15 years although imprisonment is a is a pretty uh, you know it, it's not a, a representative way to, to talk about how he was uh, how he was detained because uh, it was pretty cushy he actually got married and had kids while he was in prison like this and uh and he's living, he's living a pretty comfortable life uh, there. But all the same, he's still furious because, you know, his turncoat, his turncoat brother Radu is now the top job as the voivode of, uh, of Wallachia, uh, even though, you know, uh, Targa Vista is a, is a smouldering, rotting heap. Uh, Radu's in charge. And to make things even worse, can you imagine this, right? Bad enough. Bad enough that your younger brother has, has got your job. Can you imagine this? Radu is known as the handsome, the fair, and the beautiful. It's like, yeah, okay, we get it. This bloke was, you know, a smoking hottie. Settle down, mate. Bloody hell, what's going on? So you got Vlad the Impaler, I mean, which is accurate, again, not a bad one to have, but imagine having your brother, your little brother called bloody Radu the Beautiful. I, I, it's a bit bloody rough. I mean, you know, he's handsome, beautiful bloke, whatever else, but he, I don't know. Then again, not many people have heard of Radu the Beautiful. A lot of people have heard of Vlad the Impaler. So maybe he did get the, he got, he got, I guess he got the better bargain at the end of the, at the, end of the day. Anyway, it's not all over for Vlad. In, uh, in 1475, his handsome prick of a brother actually dies. Radu uh, shuffles off this mortal coil, and Vlad is able to whip up some support for the old Johnny Farnham comeback tour. So after having snagged the support of some other Christian rulers, Vlad is back on the warpath against the Ottomans again, just where he belongs. Of course, you know, it's exactly what he loves to do. His favourite thing to do. 
1476. He storms into Wallachia, he plonks his ass back onto the throne for the third time, no worries, and, well, long story short, gets killed within a few months. But, you know, he just can't help himself. He can't help himself. He marches off again to fight the Ottomans in in either uh, December 1476 or January 1477. And uh, during this period, he's ambushed and killed by Ottoman soldiers. So it's not all doom and gloom, really, when you think about it. I mean, it is a pretty grisly way to go. But all the same, you know, he died doing what he loved, which is always an important uh, sort of little, you know, thing to roll out at the funeral, isn't it? little phrase there, little empty platitude to, uh, to, to help the, uh, uh, those grieving for the loss there. He died doing what he loved, you know, fighting Ottomans. I suppose it would have been even better for him if he died while impaling someone, but, you know, you can't have everything. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Vlad the Impaler. Uh, Unsurprising, I guess, ultimately to learn that he was known as Vlad the Impaler because he did love to impale people. But uh, still a lot of interesting stuff in there about him fighting the Ottomans. And, of course, the debate about historical legitimacy, of course, will rage on and on. And so, you know, it is a topic I like to revisit every every now and again. So I'm sure we'll we'll, we'll we'll flog that dead horse again before too much longer, I imagine. Anyway, that's the end of the show. If you want to... uh, Skip ahead to the hilarious question at the end. Now's the time to do it, my friends, uh, because we've got the boring housekeeping announcements uh, coming your way right here, right now. Harvesthistory.net is the website for the show. Uh, if you're a new listener, an old listener, welcome. By all means, welcome. Uh, but you want to head to that uh, that website there to check out old episodes or get in touch with me. There's a contact form on the website. Uh, or you can just email me at halfhousehistory or halfhousehistory at gmail.com. Um, alternatively, Twitter at halfhousehistory without an O. Wouldn't fit. Very annoying. Um, and of course, the usual stuff, still sending out stickers to people who send me their addresses. Just uh, send me your address. I'll send you stickers. Simple as that for free. Don't even worry about that. Um, and I want to I remind people that there is a Patreon. I forgot to mention it uh, over the last couple of weeks. And um, I've just received a bunch of new patrons. And I just every time I get that email, I just can't bloody believe it. Honestly, I can't bloody believe it. Um, I've uh, I've been trying to think of something special to do for patrons, and it is it's on it's in the pipeline. I don't know exactly what I've got. If you've got ideas, if you've got anything like you want or anything that I could do for you for your Patreon, please let me know because I'm really sort of, I'm a bit stuck. Um, but uh, I, I do very much immensely appreciate the uh, the fact that people are chucking me uh, a couple of bucks every month. It, it really just means so. I can't believe it. Honestly, I can't believe it that uh, people are being so generous. So thank you. Thank you very, very much indeed uh, to all of my loyal patrons. I, I do very, very much appreciate it. Anyway, that's enough of that nonsense. Uh, thanks for listening to another episode. It's been great to hang out with you. And of course, we'll be back again with another episode next week, more half House History. Until then, leaving you with a question posed on the uh, on Reddit here. Oh, actually, no, not off Reddit this week. No, 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 I, I forgot. Uh, I've got a question I want to bring up. It was it was raised by Carl Pilkington many years ago. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Carl Pilkington, but he's such a funny bloke. He used to hang out with Ricky Gervais and Steve Merchant. He used to have a radio show um, uh, and a podcast and stuff. But anyway, in one of these radio shows, he, he, he had this question to do with vampires. You know, we talked a little bit about uh, Bram Stoker's novel Dracula and, and you know, how... Vlad the Impaler was one of the inspirations for modern day vampire stories and whatever else. But um, Carl Pilkington pointed out in one of these shows uh, a, a very, very important question and really just blows blows the whole vampire thing wide open, really. Just, you know, if there was a complete, huge big plot hole, like gaping big plot, uh, glaring plot hole here with when it comes to vampires. Because whenever you see them, right, always got the perfect, perfect centre parting, right? Always got the perfect razor straight centre parting right down the middle of their, uh, of their hair, right? How? You can't, they can't bloody see themselves in a mirror. <laughs>